0: Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure that you are in fellowship, that you have uh, are spiritually prepared for studying the word this evening, that you recover from any uh, uh, known remembered sin in your life so that we can make sure that we are keeping short accounts and fellowship and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. uh, one one prayer a couple of prayer requests that came to my attention. First, we have to keep praying for Jim Speedy. Uh, He's having a tough time in uh, recovery and ICU over at Memorial Hospital. And then Jim Myers called me this morning. He flew to San Jose today. He's teaching in a church there sometime this week, and he'll be back uh, this week. He's been going through, James Myers' ministry has been going through an audit all summer that has been, you know, if you've ever gone through that with the IRS, you know it's a never-ending test. And they don't give you any information, they just ask for more and more things. So be in prayer for that, that that can be resolved sometime uh, soon in, uh, in their favor. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we're indeed grateful that we can come to you in prayer. We know that you hear us. We know that we have the Lord Jesus Christ and God, the Holy Spirit, who intercede for us And it is on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that we know that we have direct access to your throne of grace because he is our high priest. Fathers, we come together this evening. We remember not only the requests I just mentioned regarding uh, Jim Speedy, Jim Myers Travels, but also uh, the missionaries we support in this congregation, various uh, individuals in this congregation and family members of this congregation who are dealing with uh, serious diseases. And we pray that they might be a testimony that the way they and their families handle their circumstances will be a testimony of your grace, and that those tests would be an opportunity for them to grow and mature as believers. Fathers, we come together this evening just to focus on your word. May we again be able to focus and concentrate. That you will challenge us. That we can, with what we study, that we can think more precisely about how we uh, explain the gospel to people and how we handle different kinds of evidences that are within the Scripture. We teach this, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Okay, last time, as we get into Acts chapter 4, I paused a minute to talk a little bit about uh, a topic called apologetics and this is this is important, and it 's sometimes misunderstood sometimes when people hear apologetics, they hear apology it doesn 't mean apology it is a a word apologia in the Greek in fact, Paul uses it to describe his um, his defense or presentation of the gospel to uh, i think it's uh, Festus uh, later on Felix and Festus later on in acts it 's um, Uh, used specifically by Peter in terms of a um, command for every believer that we're to sanctify the Lord in our hearts and always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. It is just a clear, precise, uh, logical explanation of something. It's used in a courtroom to refer to different presentations of a case in, in a legal sense, either for or against somebody. But in the sense in Scripture, it is a sense of giving a clear understandable. That doesn't mean they will understand it, but you have a clear way of logical presentation of the gospel based on Scriptures to those who are uh, going to listen, Uh, those to whom you are explaining uh, the gospel. It's not an apology, neither is it a synonym for Christian evidences. Some people think of it that way, and in terms of a theological discipline, it is, has a role within the theology that focuses on how we uh, give a clear uh, explanation of the gospel, and doing it in ways that don't necessarily compromise what we're trying to do. Sometimes we can do that. We may make certain assumptions. We may think that, well, if we go over to the unbeliever and make certain assumptions similar to his, that somehow that wins them, and in some ways uh, this can um, undercut our own presentation uh, presentation of the gospel. So it's just learning to think a little more precisely and clearly about how we present things. And within the uh, scope of, of uh apologetics or the discipline of apologetics. There's basically two schools that I've tried to introduce you to to at different times, and one is a school that's referred to as evidentialists, and the other is a school that's called presuppositionalists. And it's important, it, it gets a little bit off into the abstract cloud sometimes when you read people talking about the differences between the two, but What I find is that when it's explained down in a pretty common everyday level, most people understand that uh, though it has lots of uh, uh, philosophical implications, that is, in the realm of knowledge, in the realm of argumentation, that is, in presenting a case, it's just pretty simple. You either presuppose the Scripture is true or you don't. That's a simple way of putting it. I'm going to add a few things to that as as I go back over some things I did last week and as we go forward. The key issue ultimately has to do with an authority issue. And the authority issue has to do with the basis for knowledge. How do we know something is true? If I say God exists, you say prove it. How are you going to prove God if God is the source of everything, is the creator, to what authority will you appeal that is higher than God? Are you going to appeal to reason as if reason in and of itself is higher than God? Are you going to appeal to um, evidence that somehow certain evidence stands out or is treated in a special way? Now, let me talk about that. That's, that's at the core of what we're talking about. Within evidentialism, they think about evidence. Now, the classic Christian evidences are, of course, first and foremost, the resurrection, then miracles, uh, the virgin birth, the giving of Scripture, prophecy, uh, the revelation, uh, future events, and their fulfillment, the ones that have been fulfilled already in history. These are appealed to as as sort of uh, special events that if we focus on these special events, they in some sense prove the truth of Scripture. Now that brings that I use the word proof, and that brings in another issue. Do we prove Scripture is true? Or do we simply provide validation, verification, or confirmation might be another word to use that in that scripture is uh, that scripture is true. So what happens in classic Uh, evidentialist approach, they'll go to one of the three systems of knowledge and appeal to that as if it is a realm of neutrality between the believer and the unbeliever. Rationalism just focuses on uh, autonomous reason, uh, empiricism on uh, the uh, physical evidence that's seen, felt, um, that is historically based, Mysticism, of course, appeals to some sort of inner inner light. Uh, that's not something we uh, in our group necessarily run into a lot, but, but when you look historically, you see Quakers. Uh, Quakers always put this emphasis on this inner light. Uh, Mormons often do. Uh, when I was uh, uh, young or much younger, probably 20 years ago, I was up in New York, went to Palmyra, New York, which is the birthplace of Joseph Smith, who was the founder of Mormonism. And I had a little 78-year-old uh, curmudgeon of a man who had been a Southern Baptist deacon for years. And uh, and he had converted to Mormonism in his late 60s. And I said, well, how do you know it's true? And he says, oh, I had the burning in my bosom. That's a big catchphrase in Mormonism. It basically means I had liver quiver. And that told me it was true. That's, that's mysticism. Well, how do you know you didn't just... You know, eat a bad piece of meat or something. How do you tell the difference? And in presuppositionalism, it's a assumption that God has revealed certain things to us, and it's, we have to operate on, exclusively on the basis of His revelation. Now, I've been going back, doing a lot of reading on this recently because I, I go through this every so often. Each time, I always sort of see something, or read something, or discover something. I Haven't seen or discovered before, and I did this time. Go to Romans one eighteen and nineteen. I mean, you don't have to turn there, but we go to Romans one eighteen and nineteen, which is a foundational verse here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because, and here's that. Here's a very interesting, important phrase, and I just hadn't caught this before and I haven't gone back to see how I taught this when I did Romans 119, but um, the King James and New King James translations insert a may there, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. What that introduces, that translating it into English as a subjunctive, introduces the idea that they don't really know God exists, it's just potential knowledge that God exists. And you can convince them of God's existence by providing them with the right evidence. In contrast, the New American Standard translates it correctly because it's simply the adjective form of nostos, which we also run in in our passage in Acts 4, um, 16 or 17 this evening, and that states should be translated, it's correctly translated in the New American Standard because that which is known about God. See, there's a big difference between that which might be known about God or may be known about God and that which is known about God. And the way it's, Paul expresses this in the Greek is that the unbeliever knows this about God. He, It's not potential knowledge about God, it is certain actual knowledge uh, about God. And so when we start from this point, we recognize that the unbeliever isn't somebody who needs to just have a good evidentiary case brought, but someone who already knows that God exists and he doesn't want to accept it as true. This is a basic problem in with anyone who has a problem with authority I know nobody here ever had a problem with their parents' authority, and no one here ever had any trouble with children that had problems with your authority. But at the very core, they always knew any child who's rebellious, at the point they're rebellious, they know that you are the authority. They're rejecting it. They're choosing to not accept that authority. They're not, they don't need any evidence that you're the boss. They don't want to accept you as the boss. That's the point of the rebellion. Think about what happened in eternity past with Lucifer. Lucifer knew precisely who God was, is. He had no doubts. He didn't need to have somebody present him with a case of who God is. He just didn't want, chose that he didn't accept it anymore. And this is the bottom line when you look at this difference between... Uh, evidentialist apologetics and presuppositional apologetics is that in presuppositional apologetics there's the re- uh, assumption that everybody knows God exists now this leads to another important distinction now some of this may seem like hair splitting to you but it's very important in how we present the gospel and many of you are, are assuming this is already assumed in the way you've been taught to give the gospel but I'm just bringing this out and making it a little more clear the assumption here is that they already know that God exists, and so you're not trying to convince them as if the problem is rational or the problem is empirical, as if they just don't have a, 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 haven't had a logical case presented to them, and the problem isn't that they haven't had uh, the right evidence presented to them. it is that the e- the purpose of the evidence is conf- uh, is to confirm them in either their belief or unbelief. Not to convince them of the truth of something which, at one level, as I pointed out last time, they already know. There's two different levels uh, of knowledge here. There's an intellectual knowledge, and there is a, an accepted experiential knowledge. And as I pointed out last time, that we understand in the way Scripture handles knowledge that knowledge is not ethically neutral or spiritually neutral, but that it is knowledge is always impacted by a person's spiritual perceptions or presuppositions. Now I used the word presuppositions last time, and that's basically an assumption. But it's more than an assumption. In, in a presupposition is a controlling assumption, something that you you have accepted to be true, and now it's it, it may not ever be. You you believed it for so long that it's it's three three levels deep in the. Uh, basement of your thought. And uh, it's like the foundation of everything you've built on and you never look at that foundation anymore. It's like the man who goes into a psychiatrist and and he's going to the psychiatrist because he 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 needs to have surgery. But he is he's got all kinds of problems. And and um, and one of them is that he believes that he's dead and he's just convinced that he's dead. So the psychiatrist is going to work with him for a while, and the psychiatrist takes him through six or seven months of, of psychotherapy and uh, various uh, forms of evidentiary, evidentiary uh, positions to show that, that, dead, that, that living things bleed. And he uses a lot of examples. He pricks himself, he pricks uh, the dog, the cat, whatever. Living things bleed. And finally, he convinces this person that living things bleed, but the, but the patient still thinks that he's dead. So then suddenly, in a very rapid moment movement, he pulls out a pin, pokes the uh, patient, and the patient bleeds, and the patient looks down and goes, well, what do you know? Dead men bleed after all. See, it doesn't matter what the evidence is. The evidence gets absorbed and reinterpreted on the basis of a presupposition. We see a perfect example of that in our passage here, and we're going to continue to talk about that in just a minute. But I want to go on and look at what else is said here in Romans 1, 18 through 21. This is such an important passage for so many different reasons. Now in verse 20 we read, "...for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made." Even his eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. Now, what's the basis here? I want you to think about this a minute. What is the basis here for saying that we know that God exists? It's through the things that are made. It's through the details of the creation. Is 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 God's existence known? His invisible attributes revealed? through the existence of the grass outside, what's left of it? Is it revealed in the existence of the stars that we see in the sky? Is it revealed in just the cell structure of your body? Now, if this verse means that, that God's existence is proclaimed in every detail of creation, is it proclaimed and is it more clear in the resurrection than it is in a daisy No the signs are not there to convince people that God is God exists and that God is true they're credentials but see this what this verse is saying is that everything in the in the universe clearly proclaims the existence of God and his invisible attributes and nothing more clearly than anything else, nothing, and, and, so that they are without excuse. So you don't treat evidence, the classic evidences of Scripture as if they have a, an evidentiary value towards proclaiming the existence of God that's any greater than any everyday thing in creation. Every aspect of creation proclaims God's existence equally. The role of the signs is different. It is not to convince people that God exists or that it's true. If that was its role, then it miserably failed in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. How many times do we see signs and wonders given and people look at it and go, and they just completely interpret it in some other sense? If we look at Acts four sixteen and 17, we recognize that, and well, let's go back to just, just prior to that statement in verse, um, verse 14, we read, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, that is standing with the apostles, with Peter and John and the others, they could say nothing against it. They can't deny what's right in front of their eyes. Now, they're going to deny Peter and John's interpretation of that, but they're not going to deny, they can't deny that this person has been healed. But the denial of what it means or assigning a different interpretation to it is, is what's, what the unbelieving mind does to suppress the truth because it doesn't want it to mean They've got a presupposition. The Sanhedrin has a presupposition here that Jesus can't have been the Messiah and it won't matter how much evidence you give, it won't change their mind. You've all heard the saying, don't confuse me with facts, my mind's made up. That expresses the role of a presupposition. They, are, they have made a choice. They are choosing not to accept the interpretation of those facts. They, the facts are there. This is the same thing that happens in the creation-evolution debate. The creationist and the evolutionist both look at the fact of a fossil and agree on the fact of the the fossil and what it represents. But the evolutionist is going to assign a different meaning and value to it than the creationist will. And that often happens with the unbelieving mind simultaneously with seeing a fact. That's why I said last night there's no, no such thing as a raw fact. Somebody sees something in their presupposition automatically wraps around it and interprets it within their uh, within their framework. So we see in verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed, they don't question it. They don't say, no, that really didn't happen. Uh, they, they don't try to deny it because it is, it, it is a known reality. Look at verse 16 here. They say, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, and the New King James translates it, for indeed a notable miracle has been done through them. The New American Standard, I I think, translates it a noteworthy miracle. And other translations indicate a significant miracle, something like that. All of those words, notable, noteworthy, significant, all bring a level of the translator's uh, own uh, presupposition theology to the word that is actually there in the Greek. It's the same word that we have related to the knowledge about God over in Romans um, uh, 1, uh, 16 where it talks about the knowledge of God is evi- has been made evident to us. It's the word nostos, And it m- simply refers to that which is known, that which has familiarity, and therefore it came to be referring to that which is familiar or a friend. But the core idea is nostos. It's related to gnosis, epinosis, uh, gnosko is the verb, to know. And it has the idea of that which is known. And so what they are saying is there is a known miracle. But it's not the word dunamis, which is the normal word for miracle, which has the idea of, of, of uh, uh, some, a, a dynamic or a power. It's the word samion. Now, isn't that interesting? Here are these unbelieving members of the Sanhedrin, and they look at what has happened with this this uh lame man who's for over 40 years has been out there by the by the temple begging for for alms and they 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 don't reject it see the unbelieving mind doesn't doesn't have to say oh i don't believe that jesus rose from the dead the unbelieving mind can say yeah jesus rose from the dead it just doesn't mean what you think it means it doesn't mean that he's god it doesn't have to mean that the bible's true it just means that something happened we can't explain End of story. And so they they make this admission here. For indeed, what do we do with these men? For indeed, a known sign has been performed through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. They only can deny the interpretation of it. Why? Because they don't want to believe that that's what's true. It comes back to volition. And that's what's so important in witnessing is to understand that I think in the evidentialist approach to apologetics, it puts a burden on the person proclaiming the gospel that somehow I've just got to have the right answer. I've got to, if I can just articulate the position the right way, if I can just appeal to the right logical argument, then I can convince them. Jesus couldn't convince them that he was God and he performed uh tremendous miracles that the rabbis knew only the Messiah would perform, like giving sight to the blind. Because ultimately it's not a matter of the right argument and it's not a matter of the right evidence. It's a matter of the individual's volition. Now on the other hand, that doesn't mean you just do a drive-by evangelism and shoot them with the gospel gun and just quote Acts 1631 that Uh, for God, uh, that uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not giving a reasoned uh, presentation of the gospel, which is what apologia means. That is just simply throwing a verse out there and then avoiding the responsibility of entering into a dialogue with them. Well, we say that person is, they're, they're just negative. They're so hostile. Well, Up until the Damascus Road, we would have, many of you and myself included, probably would have given up on witnessing to Paul or Saul of Tarsus because we would have assumed by all of his actions from the death of Stephen up to the time that he was on the Damascus Road that this guy is negative. But that's because we don't know all the facts. We don't know how many times... It's going to take to witness to somebody before they eventually trust in Christ. It may be 10, 20, 30, 40 times before the the truth of God's word finally chips away at their suppression mechanism. So we can't just make these assumptions. We're all very quick to make those assumptions. We We talk to somebody, they... Uh, present their case christopher hitchin somebody like that think about a very famous british philosopher by the name of anthony flew who for decades has written uh from an atheist perspective now he never did become a believer but before he died and i believe he's dead now he finally admitted that there probably is a god because that's what the evidence pointed him to there there probably was a god so you never know how you are going to be used within that process of bringing that person uh, to Christ. So we have these signs. Now, let's, uh, I want to look at a couple of different examples here to see how different people have handled the same sign of a miracle or resurrection. Turn back just a few pages to the last part of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Now in John chapter 20, we have the appearance. Uh, Jesus Christ has already appeared to our ten of the disciples. Judas is dead and gone. Thomas wasn't present. And in John 20, verse 24, we read, Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples said to him, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hand, see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. If he lived today, we would say he was from Missouri, the show-me state. He's an empiricist. I have to see the evidence myself. Now, Thomas is already a, a believer. All of the disciples were believers in a pre-cross Old Testament saint sense. In John 13, in the upper room, Jesus makes it very clear. They're all believers. They're all cleansed. They're all um, Old Testament saints. This is after the resurrection. Sometimes it's an interesting conundrum to figure out, well, could somebody be a believer in the Old Testament sense and then not trust in Jesus after the resurrection? Uh, I don't know. I mean... Scripture doesn't really address that question. But here we have Thomas, and he's, he's not a believer in the resurrection at this point, and he's saying, I need to see the evidence. And after eight days, in verse 26, we read, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, <laughs> I love this, Thomas must have felt about this big. Jesus walks over and says, I know what, you know, I know what you said. Come on, reach over here, touch my hand, put your, put your finger here, look and feel the the nail print, feel the scars and uh, put it into my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Now Thomas didn't do that. He just instantly recognized that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And he says to him in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He recognized that instantly. Now, that is the response of the believer, of the, the, the positive person who is not suppressing truth and unrighteousness, who sees the evidence, and the evidence has its confirmatory value for them, and they interpret it within uh, the grid of Scripture, and they accept it as true instantly. Now, on the other hand, you have the case of the Apostle Paul. So, turn over back into Acts, and I want you to go past Acts four this time, and let's go to Acts chapter nine. We'll get into all of this in a little more detail as we as we move forward. But in Acts chapter seven, we have the stoning of Stephen. This is the. Um, uh, This is the uh, first martyr of the church, and we read at the end of Acts chapter 7 that Stephen knelt down, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, the first verse of the next chapter, now Saul was consenting to his death. See, in verse 58 of the previous chapter, we read that when the uh, Sanhedrin hauled Stephen out of the city to stone him, they took off their outer garments and they threw him at the feet of a young man named Saul. So Saul is consenting to his death. And at the same time, a persecution arose against the church at Jerusalem and they're scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria uh, except for the the apostles. And so it's during this time that uh, Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, continues to feed his hostility to the Christians. Now look at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that, he, uh, so that if he found any who were of the way, that's what they refer to Christianity at this point, uh, any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, is this a picture of somebody who's positive? No. And so he's going to have a little special uh, uh, a, a extra in his, uh, uh, the way he's witnessed to. And so in verse 3 we read, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, that Saul said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goad." So he, that is Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Now, this isn't just some uh, hallucination that that Saul had on the road to Damascus because a hallucination is totally inside your head. Now, that's the way liberal theologians express this. But the, the, since the message was only for him, he's the only one who understood the voice. But those with him uh, heard, the, heard a noise, they heard the voice, they could, could not uh, understand or distinguish the words, and they saw something that was an objective reality. Now what happens with, with Saul here? Again, here we have a person who at, at some point in his life he's positive at God-consciousness. But then he's covering that up with a lot of suppression, just like all of us do at different times. We just don't want God's way to be right at times. We're in rebellion against it. And then Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus, and again, he knows it's true. He can't continue to deny it. He doesn't continue to deny it. And now he accepts the interpretation of Jesus as the Messiah. So we have Thomas on the one hand, who immediately responds to the Lord as a believer, and then we have the example of Saul. And so in both cases, in both cases, there's a use of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, but it is not a use of evidence that is setting it apart as something unique and distinct among other aspects of, of creation. It is a confirmation of the message. It is not overcoming a deficit of knowledge or a deficit of evidence. The evidence has been there, has been there all along. Now it's interesting when we also when we look at this passage in Acts four sixteen, the Sanhedrin says, For indeed a known sign has taken place. They can't deny it. Everybody knows that that this healing has taken place. Nobody questions it. Nobody's raising an issue and saying, well, wait a minute, we should have had x-rays or we should have, uh, you know, this was some kind of uh, just a uh, a hoax. Uh, They all knew. There's no doubt whatsoever, but some of them accepted the interpretation of Peter and John and others didn't. But it's called a known sign. Now, it's important to understand this within the flow of what Scripture says about signs. So I want you to turn back with me to uh, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to look at two different passages in Matthew that talk about signs. And a sign is simply a, a confirmation or validation of something. It is not evidence in the sense of proof that something is right or wrong it 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 confirms that it is the idea of proof once again remember brings in the idea that you you're appealing to this as an authority that would be higher higher than god so in matthew chapter 12 look at verse 38 Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Same word, same But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't you think that that if you'd read, that Jesus had read Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, that when they asked him for a sign, he would have said, Okay, I'll, I'll give you another sign. But that's not what he says. He said, he just turns on them and says, "Only an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign." He condemns them and chastises them for asking for a sign, rather than saying, thinking, "Oh, you you really just need a little more evidence." See, this is how the, we often think of this when we're talking to uh, some people. There, they just never get to it. I, I remember some years ago, I was at. Uh, I was at a birthday party for someone, and there was a, a Jewish fellow there. He was a Jewish lawyer, and everybody at the party knew him and had known him because he was personal friends with the host, and he had been to a number of of these kinds of social gatherings. And he had been um, witnessed to over the years uh, probably, I don't know, 50, 60 times. Gene witnessed to him. Uh, that day uh, many other people witnessed to him um, in fact at that particular party i think there was only one person who did not uh, sit down with this guy and explain the guy and that happened almost any time he came here. and he loved to talk about it but he always wanted more evidence he always wanted something more he he never was and i've run into people like that they just they just like talking about it but they're never going to believe I mean, I can't say that absolutely, but they're probably never going to believe. They just always want a sign. And so Jesus recognizes this and he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign, the sign of the resurrection. Now, turn over a couple of chapters to Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to see a, another confrontation, this time not with the Pharisees and scribes, but with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then in, we'll look at verses one, and, uh, 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees and Sadducees this time came and, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. He's already given them numerous miracles and signs. They just always want so, it's, it's something else. They're asking for proof on their terms, and that's, this is the problem. They're asking for proof on their agenda, and they've already been given objective validation of the claims of Jesus. And he answered them and said, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening hypocrites you know how to discern the face of the sky but you cannot determine or discern the signs of the times a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet jonah so again he refers to the sign of the prophet jonah and then when you look at first corinthians one twenty-two, paul says for jews request a sign and greeks seek after wisdom and again, what he's pointing out is, is the human viewpoint of the Jewish mentality is asking for something on their agenda in terms of proof, not a, not a confirmation in terms of sign. And the Greeks, what do they want? They want to have wisdom. They want to have that's, that's how they're going to validate truth is on the basis of uh, human wisdom. So they have their agenda, and they say, God, you don't exist. What happens, Romans 1, they already know God exists. But in their suppression technique, they're saying, you don't exist, and you have to prove yourself to me on my terms. But they're still not going to accept it, because whatever happens, because it's, uh, they're already suppressing truth and unrighteousness. So Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after, uh, seek after wisdom. So, let's go back to one other passage as we talk about signs. Go back to John 20. John 20. We were just there with um, talking about Thomas. John chapter 20. Now, in John 20, the context has been that, that Thomas wanted to see that physical evidence. And Jesus replied to him in verse 29, he says, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. You've had a little additional empirical data here, and you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, who lacking any sign or additional confirmation, those who have not seen. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John inserts his comment. This is the doctrinal teaching point in verse 30 and 31. He says, And truly, Jesus did many other signs, Samian. Now, John is well known, the gospel of John is well known as having eight signs. The first sign is the turning the water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And then there were additional signs which Jesus performed that John focuses on, which validate his claim to be the Messiah. The eighth and final sign is the sign of the resurrection. So he concludes his gospel by saying that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these what? What's the context? These signs. These signs, that is these eight signs that are in the Gospel of John, these signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, the purpose of the signs isn't to provide proof in the sense of appealing to a higher authority or as if these are of a higher nature of demonstrating the existence of God and the claims of Jesus than the, than every aspect of creation. They are signs because... What does a sign do? You're driving down the highway down here, and you get down to Columbus, and there's a sign that says, 71 West, this way, towards Austin. What does a sign do? It points to something. A sign isn't doesn't prove that something exists... It is identifying something to be what it claims to be. It's confirmatory. And so these signs confirm the claims that Jesus is making that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah as promised uh, in the Old Testament. So there's nothing wrong with the proper use of signs and evidence. See, this is one of the claims from people who haven't really read uh, people like Cornelius Van Til and others who teach presuppositional apologetics, they often make certain claims that um, uh, that are untrue. They say they don't believe in evidences. No, they don't believe in the wrong use of evidence or the wrong use of signs. Signs have a specific role. God always confirms what he does in history uh, through external verifiable events, but they're not there in the sense of proof, that the unsaved mind needs more evidence. The unsaved mind already has all the evidence it needs. The signs simply point to what God has said to be true and confirm it as a as a calling card, identifying something to be what it claims to be. So let's sort of summarize what I've done with this. First of all, evidence is not neutral. Evidence is not neutral. Any any fact, any event is going to be immediately interpreted based on the presuppositions of the person there. Now, if that person is an unbeliever and their presupposition is is that that God can't work this way because that would be grounded in arrogance. And arrogance, arrogance is tenacious. Arrogance doesn't want to give up. And when you're operating on arrogance, it doesn't matter how much evidence there is. We live in a time right now when what's happened in this nation and internationally, because it's not just this nation, but it's nations all over the earth have been operating on models of economic theory that have brought us to the brink of worldwide economic collapse. In the United States, it's primarily been the domination since the 1930s of Keynesian economics, uh, John Maynard Keynes, and this is the idea that that money is basically relative. You don't need. That's one reason we went off the gold standard under Nixon back in the 1970s, uh, uh, 69, 70, somewhere in there. Uh, that there's no absolute value to money and that that all you need to do to get out of a bad economic situation is for the nation to print more money and, and spend more money. And that's why you see one segment of politicians saying, no, we need to just spend more money. We need to have another, you know, we've had QE2, we need QE3, then QE4. We need another stimulus package. We just need to print more money and pour more money into the economy. But it hasn't worked. There was a tremendous editorial in the Wall Street Journal at the end of last week that pointed out that the Keynesian bag of tricks is now empty. They've thrown everything they have at, at the economy, and it hasn't worked. But arrogance is tenacious. They're not going to believe that the problem is their whole approach to, e- to money and to the economy. Because to admit that means that everything they believe is false, and they can't accept that. That version of their pagan arrogance is tenacious. Then you you have in contrast to that, you have um, uh, Milton Friedman and uh, the Chica- what's referred to as the Chicago School of Economics, and you have Ludwig von Mises and the uh, uh, Austrian School of Economics, which are based on a more realistic view. Of, of money and finance. And when somebody's operating on a Keynesian system, and that's, their, that's how they were trained, that's how they were brainwashed in, 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 in their education system, when they hear a, a, a um, someone from the Austrian school talking about uh, economic theory, might as well be speaking Chinese to them. That's why you see this conflict going on. You'll hear some politicians stand up and say, you know we've got to quit being so polarized. we have to quit being so id so ba- basing all of this on on i, I- ideals Ide- it's just idealism. we have to get practical. Well you usually hear that from the from the Keynesians on the left. you got Keynesians on the right too that's why this is such a mess. but you usually hear that from the Keynesians on the left and the problem is is that th- whoever's saying that it's just a polemic. Uh, just a ploy, it's just rhetoric. But the problem is, is that the, you you can't expect them not to operate on their belief system. That's absurd. And the conservatives, especially the Tea Party, for the most part, I, mean, I, I read an article not long ago, there was an interview with Michelle Bachman, and somebody asked her, um, I'm, not nece- I'm not endorsing her, but somebody asked her, I said, well, you go to the beach, what do you read when you go to the beach? Well, I read Milton Friedman, and um, I read... Uh, Hayek, and I read uh, von Mises, and the reporter probably didn't even know who those people were or are and had no clue. But what impressed me was that she's at least reading the right people and knows their names and who they are, and most of the politicians on the left don't have a clue and never heard of them. And so you really do have people just like unbelievers and believers, just like Christians and non-Christians, you have these people who buy into completely different visions of reality as far as money and finance go. And as far as the, the, the Keynesians who've dominated for, for decades go, they can't... They, they, and based on their assumptions, the the others, the Tea Party crowd, are, are radical idiots because it violates everything they've been brainwashed to believe. Well, that, that's just a perfect example of what happens in the conflict between Christianity and non-Christians is that they're committed in arrogance to a position that, uh, to, of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And you can't change that by evidence if that's their, their decision. And so when it comes to witnessing, what the bottom line on all of this is it gives us tremendous freedom to be able to simply know the gospel, understand all the aspects of the gospel to the best of our ability, and then to present it clearly to the person who needs to hear it. We don't have to be, have a master's degree in theology. We don't have to control all of the data in Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be familiar with some of these things, but that's not the ultimate issue that we're going to try to convince. The reason the unbeliever is an unbeliever is because he doesn't have enough evidence, and it hasn't been presented to him correctly. No, the reason the unbeliever is the unbeliever is because he's chosen up to that point in his life to not believe the gospel. He has chosen to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that is exactly what we see exhibited by the Sanhedrin here in Acts chapter 4. They say, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, a known sign has been performed through them that a known sign has been performed through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let's severely threaten them. We have no rational case anymore. All we can do is get angry and threaten them because we're suppressing the truth and unrighteous, and we've we've stuffed God down into a box, and we put the lid on it, nailed it down, and they're starting to take... the top off the box and God's going to come out and we can't let that happen so we have to just threaten them that's all that's left so that it spreads no further let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name and then verse 18 says so they called him and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus so next time we'll come back and begin to look at what I had suggested a couple of lessons back What is the role and responsibility of the individual believer when an authority over them, not just a governing authority, that's the context, but this could apply to any authority, your employer, this could apply to your parents, this could apply to a commanding officer, a teacher, it could apply to any legitimate authority over what is the role of the believer And is there a proper time for the believer to disobey a legitimate authority over him? And what are the parameters biblically for dealing with that kind of a situation when the person in authority over you tells you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God? So we'll begin to look at that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to take a look at your Word and think a little bit more about How we present the gospel, the role of evidence, the role of the signs in the scripture, knowing that these confirm that which is already revealed by you, that which is clear already, scripture says, help us to understand that uh, unbelievers already know you exist, that part of what takes place when we talk to them is to help expose that which they're trying to suppress and just to help them understand the truth of the scripture that you have loved all of us in such a way that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, to clearly, that we might clearly and cogently present the truth of the gospel to those who need to hear it, trusting that it is God the Holy Spirit's role to convince them of the truth of what we are saying, And that is not our role, but the role of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.